0: Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 46. And I'm very pleased to be joined this month by Sharon Salzberg. She is a meditation pioneer and industry leader, a world renowned teacher, and New York Times bestselling author. She's author of this month's book, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. Thank you so much, Sharon, for being on the podcast.
1: It's a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: So I've taken a lot of notes on the book, and I have a lot of questions. And I think my first one is about these three hindrances that you talk about on page 35, craving or grasping, aversion, and delusion sort of the way I think about them is those are like thoughts and and beliefs that maybe are really important to us as like children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's almost like as we grow and introspect and heal, we sort of come to see like where they're not true and maybe where they're not useful. How does that metaphor kind of land for you?
1: Uh, I think that's perfect. I think many of these tendencies or habits or or thought patterns are very smart. Sometimes at the time that we adapt them. You think about how many times people, children who are in an abusive uh, family talk about leaving their body. You know, they they lose sense of their body and that's pretty smart in a lot of circumstances, but it may not be what you want as your go-to place Mm -hmm. when you're an adult. It may not be what you want when you have options. You know, you might not see any options, you might not have any options, or many as a child, but now you're an adult, you know, and and there's creativity that's possible, and uh, there's a different way of being that might be possible, and so we want to be able to see those patterns as patterns, and not necessarily just dive in.
0: Exactly, yeah, as you talk about on page 35, patterns that have outlived their usefulness. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, There's something else you mentioned that I really resonate with, and that's this idea of speediness as a way to delay or disregard pain. Mm -hmm. Um, How common in in the folks that you've taught or maybe in your own life have you found this kind of busyness to be as a way of kind of distracting from those those hard, painful feelings?
1: I think the first thing I'd want to say is that I I do say that, and I don't want that to appear as judgmental, you know, Mm. like the examples that I used in the book, you know, were examples I well understood, like why somebody uh, would find that kind of pain, especially if you feel alone. If you if you don't sense that you have allies or a counselor or, or someone sitting there with you, then it would feel just too overwhelming. Better, f- you know, better get busy, <laughs> you know, to not, not have to be with it. And, and so I don't feel that. I don't feel sort of the existence of, Craving and and grasping and aversion and delusion is is something to judge either. Judge in the sense of being harsh about, you know, there's certain patterns and there's certain ways of being. Sometimes, sadly enough, the the very things we think are going to make us most happy make us most unhappy. And we don't necessarily realize that until we we really take a look. And so the example that I use in the book was uh, working with, Veterans and their families And there were a couple of women there Who had a, a grievously injured family member and, and one woman, the woman where I first had this insight Was like going so fast uh, In the way she spoke And, and the, you know the things she was talking about And I just thought, boy, you know If she ever slowed down Very likely there would be a mountain of pain to be looking at it. And again, I don't say that judgmentally and I don't think it's that easy to do alone, you know? And so it's smart to sense the circumstance in which you can let go of those habits a little bit.
0: For sure. Something I, I really appreciate the book about the book is this lack of judgment and this willingness to tell people like, it's okay. You know, you go take a break or, Go what do whatever is needed, you know. When things are overwhelming, I feel like early students of mindfulness, including myself, take it on as like one more obligation or aspiration, Mm -hmm. where we like Mm -hmm. are constantly falling short. And it's so hard. I feel like to get that message across that the judgment is like an extra, unneeded layer. Um, Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's an easier way to get like early students of mindfulness to not beat themselves up in the beginning.
1: Well, I guess you just say whatever you say, you know, and say it over and over again. Um, uh, the story I like, and I may have told it the last time I was with you, um, is about my Burmese meditation teacher who was a monk uh, named Saida Upandita, who we brought over here in uh, 1984 to lead a three-month retreat. And we had not met him before, but we heard he was a really great teacher. And he was, and he, he turned out to be super fierce and intense and demanding. and uh, But for me, that worked. You know, it translated in my mind to a message of, oh, he really thinks I can do it. He yeah. thinks I can He thinks I can work harder. He thinks I have a lot of capacity. Look at that. But anyway, it was intense. And so I sat that retreat, and several of my friends sat that retreat. And one day in the hall, uh, there was a question and answer session, and, and this is uh, guy said to Upandita, what should I do when I feel a lot of physical pain in my meditation? Should I stay with it or should I move my attention to something that's easier to be with? So for those who meditate, that might be listening to sound or feeling something else in your body that is more comforting than the area of physical pain or something like that. So I thought given Upandita's personality, he was going to say you should sit with the pain till you fall over. And to my amazement, he did not. He said, be with the pain, move your attention to something that's easier, then go back to the pain, go back to something that's easier. And this, by the way, is, you know, it's a very um, complex statement because we also use emotional pain as a substitute for physical pain in that very question. So how long should I be with it before I turn my attention to something that's easier? And he said, It's not wrong to just be with it and be with it and be with it, but you'll likely get exhausted. So, why not build in balance all along the way? And I was so shocked that he said that. I thought, Boy, if those words are coming out of his mouth, he must really believe it because he was the furthest thing in the universe from someone who said something just because he wanted to be comforting, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, that was a really telling example. People often hear that instruction and they think and say, she thinks I'm a coward. She -hmm. thinks I can't do the real thing. She thinks I can't just stay with the painful experience. But it's not that at all. We're just building in balance all along the way. Because the idea is not to get overwhelmed by a difficult physical or emotional experience. But to be with it in a different way. With a little more perspective uh, and presence and so on. So build it in all along the way. You need a break? You take a break. Uh, You shouldn't sit there and just be with the pain, be with the pain, be with the pain if it's exhausting you. It's not wrong to move your attention to something that's easier to be with. And that's an interesting life lesson, too, isn't it?
0: Yeah, a lot of us can sort of suffer indefinitely, feeling like uh, we're earning some points all the while. Yeah. So you said something interesting about some of us substitute emotional pain for physical pain. Um, I could guess at what I think you're getting at, but do you want to say more about that?
1: Well, I meant in the sense that that question could well be asked about emotional pain mm. rather than physical pain. And, and interestingly enough, the response would be the same.
0: Yeah. I think also in the brain, and I'm no scientist, but I feel like they show up similarly, emotional yeah, and physical yeah. pain.
1: Well, some people, of course, I think somaticize is the word quite a bit. And so it will likely show up in some physical sensation.
0: Mm -hmm. So there's something you hear a lot in this community about how things are always changing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And in the book, like on page 37, you talk about how it's sort of futile to grasp and crave because of this truth that things are always changing and how, you know, if we really internalize that fact maybe we have more freedom to act or maybe we engage in activities less that cause us suffering what what does it look like to really embrace this idea of things always changing and and also when we say things are always changing are we merely talking about moment to moment experience or are we also talking about more commonplace things like you know you you lose your job you get a new job you lose a friend you get a new friend you move to a different city so like at what level of granularity is this fact supposed to touch on
1: well I think it's every level and I think uh, the first place to start is what happens like what do you think how do you feel what happens in your body when you imagine change coming you know and I think many of us um, would describe uh, a kind of catastrophizing, you know, like change uh, equals insecurity and sometimes that feels like it can't be tolerated. And so we project the worst and we project permanence with it. Like this terrible thing is the only thing I'll ever feel for the rest of my life. Um, And there's a kind of uh, seeming solidity or reification that happens, which is just not reflective of the truth. And, and so that's an interesting question. It's just look at your tendencies, you know, like I, I'm not the worst catastrophizer I know, but if I, uh, like I remember once, um, cause I live, I live here in Barry, Massachusetts next door to the insight meditation society, but I have at different times, uh, rented a, a small, sometimes tiny apartment in New York city and, and, uh, and live there and taught out of there. and um, So there was one point, as often was the case, where I was going to lose my apartment, I was going to lose the lease. And uh, right away, you know, my mind went into, oh, you know, it's going to be, we are going to have to find an even smaller place, we're going to have to find a place in a bad location. To have to... And I was talking to a friend, and, and they looked at me, and they said, well, maybe you like the next place better. <laughs> and I thought that never occurred to me. And in fact, it was true. I did like the the next place better. You know, so what does change mean to us and how do we hold it? And, um, you know, is it only bad stuff coming our way? And is it, uh, if it is, you know, is it going to be there forever? These things are very instructive for us and being able to recognize, you know, change is everything, change is uh, glorious and beautiful and creative and opening. And it's also... Things are fleeting. We can't hold on. There's a poignancy there. Would that we could hold on. Uh, keep life from barreling away. But we can't. And, and so we, we learn to take in, I think, both sides. And so there's, there's just a greater ease because it's how things are going to be. Like, you know, leases are going to come to an end and friends are going to move away and uh, people get sick and people die. And But in, in some ways, it's a little bit of a cliche, but it does inspire us to live more fully right now.
0: Hmm. Yeah. This sort of brings me to uh, another sort of polarization that I think it'll be interesting to tease apart a little bit. And I stumbled with a lot in the early days of my practice and still still do. And I think it's the difference between maybe equanimity and resignation or Mm -hmm. fatalism. I don't know if the latter is a near enemy or there's another term mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. But I know that for myself and also for some friends of mine who've tried to take this on, you know, this idea of like change and then there's like parables about Chinese farmers and stuff. I I have one friend in particular who's been in a job that he doesn't like and he's been in it for a long time and I think part of him feels somewhat resigned given you know, the idea that change could mean something worse, it could mean mm-hmm. something better. So I wonder, how, how do you like dance between those two things? Or or maybe it's it's easy if you look at it in a different way?
1: Well, no, I don't think it's easy, but I, I think it's uh, important. And uh, also, and I'm thinking about your friends, sometimes change uh, is not the, sometimes the change is not the massive change, like a new job, because it depends on circumstances. And conditions you know sometimes it's change within a circumstance or it's change you know it's learning something new or uh bringing kind of brightness to your life in a different way but anyway sometimes it is uh really a bigger sense of loss or or movement um that happens and so uh, equanimity um in the buddhist psychology means balance and uh In some contexts, it's the voice of wisdom. It's the balance or wisdom, for example, that would say about your friend, maybe that friend, maybe a different friend, who's really struggling. And it's it's realizing I would do so much to try to help you in your situation, and it's not in my hands in the end. I'm not in control of life. Um, I wish that I was, you know, like I wish someone had invented the chip we could implant in someone else's brain and we're holding the remote control and we can say, Hey, cheer up. Hmm. But life's not like that because things arise when conditions come together. So that doesn't mean we don't care. And it doesn't mean we don't try. We're not present and whatever, but there's a kind of attachment or fixation. Like I've got to be the one to make this all work. That doesn't have to be there. And that, just leads to frustration and and stress and giving up actually. So what is that caring with balance? We, we call that balance equanimity. And so we really want both. We want the caring and the trying and the compassion, and we want some perspective on things. Like Owens said to a group of people, if only I were in charge of the universe, I think it would be so much better a world And someone in the room challenged me. They said, are you sure? I thought about it for a moment. I said, I am really sure. (laughs) If only I were in charge of this world, it would look so much better. But you know what? It's not going to happen. So I wouldn't call it resignation or indifference or coldness or withdrawal. I'd call it wisdom. And you can feel the difference, you know, when there's just the sort of heaviness of, of resignation. So the concept of the near enemy, which you brought up, uh, comes right out of Buddhist psychology where certain states, like equanimity, like loving kindness, like compassion, are talked about as having a far enemy, something that's clearly the opposite. Like, you'd never confuse the far enemy with the state that you're, you're trying to cultivate. But there's also this thing called the near enemy, which is sneaky. It's like something that's close enough so that at a superficial glance you can get confused And one can masquerade as the other It takes a deeper look and exploration to say Oh, they are very different you know. So the near enemy of equanimity is indifference But to me that implies a kind of coldness Or it's a little bit like the, the cliche, the joke of a teenager Like whatever,
0: mm.
1: you know, where there's a lot of sullenness really in there Whereas equanimity is just balance. It's like, that's right. Sometimes things take time. Sometimes I don't get a result by the afternoon. Sometimes I have to let go because I'll keep trying, but if I try with attachment to getting my way, like you're going to get better by Tuesday, everyone's only going to suffer. It's not going to help. And so we want wisdom in, in everything that we do, and especially in kind of compassionate action
0: interesting yeah so maybe one way that if we're trying to decide whether we've taken up company with economic equanimity or its evil twin resignation we can sort of look at the feeling tones or maybe how much wisdom we're feeling in and around that cool yeah i think that's that's probably a useful method so urge surfing is something that comes up in the book and uh I've only spent about 10 seconds on a surfboard, but I have a little bit more experience (laughs) (laughs) with urge surfing. And I think at first glance, if you just hear the phrase, at least when I hear it, it feels like another challenge, like another thing I must do in order to be the most healed or be the most actualized. But in the book, and I've heard you say this, and I've also heard uh, one of your students, Orin J. Sofer, say it is... When you're feeling the urge to do to give in, or maybe "give in" is the wrong word, but to sort of do something that is resulting from a craving, something you can ask yourself, and I've been trying it as I've been reading the book, and it's quite it's quite nice and it's quite useful. It's just asking yourself, like, what do I need right now, or what do I really need here, and and often you get a response, you know, from the ether, you know, or for your from your mind. I I like to comfort eat, and I've been snacking on some really delicious pancakes that I'm making this morning. Um, and it's nice, it's wonderful just to like have really delicious food. But I notice that if I stop and I ask myself, like, what do I need here? A lot of times I'll get it connection, you know, safety, fun. Um, and that's, I don't know, it's such a wonderful change of tone for the the experience. All of a sudden the experience is not one of like void. It's one of like, there's answers there. And like, maybe I still eat the pancake, but at least I know why I'm doing it.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. No, that is very good. Mm I mean, the the intriguing thing for me in urge surfing is uh, something that we have to do in mindfulness training anyway, which is like we would say that the uh, common tendency, let's say you want something really badly. Let's say you want a new car really badly. The and any strong emotion is like this our energy, our interest, or fascination is going to go to the object or the situation or the person or whatever it is. So, if it's a car, you're going to be thinking, Do I want that kind of upholstery or that kind of upholstery? Do I want that way of playing music or that way of playing music? And it's not going to be common to kind of pivot your attention around as though to ask yourself, What does it feel like to want something so badly? So it's the feeling itself that becomes the uh playground of our exploration. Mm. And so you're not asking, like, how did I get here? What am I gonna do about it? What's the letter I'm gonna write, you know, or what's the therapist I'm gonna choose? It's like, what does it feel like to have so much craving? And that becomes really interesting. It's not something we often explore. It's something that You know, it is manifest in our body. It's manifest in our mood. These feelings tend to be very complex. You know, they're they're compounds. People have often come back after a question like that. You know, if we're working together, like, I might say, tell me three things you find within that desire. And one of them could be that it's changing. So often they come back with something like, I hadn't realized how much loneliness was fueling my desire. I hadn't realized how much boredom was feeling, you know, whatever it is. And so uh, that's how we get to develop insight is by looking. And so that's what we look at. And so that's what Surf the Urge means to me. It's like it doesn't matter what you're wanting. It doesn't matter, you know, how you feel about it in the sense of, you know, uh, I've been meditating for 50 years. It should be gone, you know, but what is it? What is the experience of it? And, And that's very alive
0: yeah yeah it's it's a an interesting um way to set our curiosity on something i've been finding for myself a couple of different mantras or phrases i'll use during the day when i'm getting sort of blended or stuck or getting tight around things one of them i was using for a while and it seems like these little phrases they only work for like a couple of months or they only work until i tell some friends about it <laughs> and mm-hmm. they stop working but i had one for a while that i got from lock kelly and i would just say no problem to solve
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and that was working for a while until it felt like there really were problems to solve and my mind would say like no <laughs> there is a problem here i have a problem yeah and then the other one that i've been using w- is just like the question like can i bring attention to this moment and most of the time it works, but then sometimes I hear a response, and it's like, "No, I just want to eat this pancake mindlessly. I don't want to bring attention to this like we mm-hmm. don't have any we don't have any room or space for this."
1: yeah, I mean, what you experience when it quote unquote works is that you're moving into a state of greater balance, you know sometimes we're kind of leaning forward, and we need to just settle back a bit and sometimes. We're way too far back and we need to get a little more engaged. And so all of these like methods and techniques and uh, little so-called tricks, you know, like that's what they do. They bring us into a greater state of balance. And sometimes it's just intuitive. You feel like, whoa, I'm leaning forward. Like in my earlier practice, um, when I was, you know, just kind of starting out and the first instruction was be aware of your breath, I, I realized at some point that that was very difficult for me because almost as soon as this breath was beginning, I'd find myself kind of mentally leaning forward to get ready for the next 50. You know, I was very frightened. I was very uh, wary. I didn't know what might happen next. I felt I'd be ready for it. A lot had already happened for me in my life. and And so for me, balance looked like settle back. Let the breath come to you. <clears throat> I used to say to myself, you're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it because it's so much performance anxiety. It's like I've never done it before. Mm. Settle back. Let the breath come to you. So that kind of saying is what addresses the question of balance. And then you're back. But do they always work? No, they they, they do sometimes not work. and But that's what's happening is you're just settling in.
0: So I had a question about if, you know, in the moment we're experiencing something difficult, but it feels like we don't really have time or space to deal with it. Maybe we're busy in those moments. Is it advisable or have you found it useful to kind of just say to your mind, like, Hey, sorry, I'm kind of busy right now. I can't really check in with this pain, but I'll, I'll be with you later the next day, like a bookmarking it in some way.
1: It might be. I mean, I, I I more immediately thought about are there building blocks I could be putting in place so that when I eventually feel I do have the space, there's just sort of more inner resource, you know, with which to meet what's difficult. So it, it could be just a reflection of meditation, formal meditation feels too daunting in some way, you know, like. Um, what, what do you have to be grateful for? For example, um, you know, those lists of like three things a day, you know, that I have to be grateful for really helpful. They're very healing. And you enter a situation of looking at pain, not feeling, it's such a deficit, you know, like I had nothing going on in my life. Um, so something like a gratitude reflection or loving kindness for yourself or, um, looking at the, good thing that you can do today might be, you know, just resolving to thank people when they do something for you. And um, things like that, you know, are very important anyway. And, and they're very onward leading and, and they will help in the eventual moment when you're more confronting the painful experience.
0: Mm, right. So there's smaller sort of less confrontational yeah. Ways of maybe getting yourself out of a a bit of tightness that don't really require the turning inward completely. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm curious if you think there are any limits of mindfulness, especially with regard to trauma or 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 things like that.
1: Uh, I think, practically speaking, there are um, mindfulness. You know, is pretty broad and. There are a lot of ways, you know, you can practice with through movement, you know, whether it's walking meditation or yoga or something like that. You can practice silently. You can practice giving voice to something. You can practice activity like a mindful meal or mindful cup of tea. You can practice being still. You know, there's so many possibilities. And... It's not always thought that way, not always felt that way. and so the reality is that you might not encounter a guide or a teacher who has confidence in all those ways you know and their ability to guide it and so you don't want to be limited to um, someone else's limitation or or their own particular allegiance to a technique and and so practically speaking, you know it's like, a lot to find somebody with that kind of flexibility or be able to do that on your own through an app or, uh, you know, some other means of getting some guidance and, but that doesn't mean it's impossible, you know? And so I think there's an element of mindfulness that is in almost every healing modality we do anyway, mm. you know, so it's only going to be of help. But if you're thinking about a strict sort of, I'm going to sit in a pretzel like pose and, you know, for 45 minutes without moving that sometimes not that helpful. And, and so, you really need a lot of flexibility.
0: mm mm-hmm. um, I really like the distinction you were making on page 44 about the difference between remorse and guilt and mm-hmm. the language around that, how that's a little different in the Buddhist psychology mm-hmm. versus the Western psychology. And, uh, yeah, it's just really interesting because... You know you might get yourself into a situation i was in a situation recently where i sort of came up short and depending i guess on how much you come up short it's 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 frequent or easy for me to find messages in my mind that are not just you know i did something wrong but you know i am wrong i am bad again it kind of goes back to what we were talking at the beginning of the episode about these sort of young beliefs you know these hindrances about the way things are, as ha- having to be really personal, like your deficits being really personal, instead of just being kind of just like physics, right? Mm-hmm. Just like the right neuron to the right atoms in the right place at the right time. I wonder. Do you, Do you think there's any utility or usefulness in some of those messages of like personal worth with regard to, you know, making a mistake, or are they really mm-hmm. just you know not really supportive messaging that need to be corrected?
1: Well it depends you know like on, on where you feel the imbalance is you know um the uh I mean going back to what you said about the book you know like that was a kind of languaging change I had to make um sort of being actually more familiar with Buddhist psychology than western psychology and uh, but the idea is really the same you know there are times when we remember or we re-experience like something we've done that caused harm. You know, we said something or we didn't say anything uh, when we really maybe should have, we did something or didn't do something. And when we remember it or recall it, it's painful. You know, this is very beautiful saying from the Buddha who said, uh, if you really, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another because sometimes that kind of recklessness or harm toward another is coming from a lack of love for ourselves, and in any case, it's coming from a lack of appreciation of our potential. Um, and when we recall it, we do feel the pain of it, and, and that pain is not irrelevant. You know, It's what helps us resolve not to do the same thing again to the best of our ability It helps us resolve to make amends if that's appropriate, you know? And so we feel the pain. We realize, Oh, I don't want to just dwell like this forever. Let me try to do better. Um, and you let it go. And that's different. That's called remorse or regret in the Buddhist psychology. That's different than guilt where guilt is more like a kind of lacerating self hatred where you just are stuck, you know, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible, look what I did, is awful. And you end up drained and demoralized and without the energy to go on and see if you can be different. And so it's not that helpful, it's not that skillful. In the Western psychology, the words are just different, but the idea I think is the same, that there's a good kind of, although painful, state that leads to kind of this sensitive sense of conscience so that you just don't want to be that lonely or apart from others. And, and that's in contrast to a more kind of toxic state where you're stuck. And so they call guilt kind of the appreciation of the fact that what you did or what you said was hurtful, it was harmful. So it's really about the act. Whereas shame is the word they use to be kind of wholesale condemnation of yourself. Like, I am the worst person who ever lived. Not like, oh, I got frightened and told a lie, you know, but, like, I am horrible altogether. And so that's not that helpful. And it takes a lot because the whole kind of mainstream cultural message can be different than that. Like, you know, pile shame on top of shame. It'll be good for you. But it's not good for us. And and that's why we need mindfulness to really discover that.
0: Yeah i wonder do you think these ideas are on their way out like this shame upon shame Are are we like gradually taking them out of the culture and you know filtering them out or are they like i wonder how these ideas re- even like get here you know because they don't seem right. terribly useful like you would think they would sort of graduate out or you know die and not become reincarnated like i wonder why they're so common
1: someone should write a book you know like a Uh, ideas that really don't make it you know like like it's a dog eat dog world
0: (laughs) yeah no one says that anymore (laughs) no one
1: says anymore i say it just to examine it but you know that kind of view may not be so popular anymore which would be nice
0: yeah i wonder if there was a time in human history where the shame or maybe maybe shame was just like the best idea they had at the time they didn't have anything more subtle right. or more right. true. And so it, it by proxy, it kind of worked, but there was a lot of collateral damage associated with it.
1: Right. Well, there's a lot of damage.
0: Yeah. So I'm imagining maybe like someone who has to support a, a whole family loses their job and like the quickest way to spur them to action to go and find means is to like feel really bad about themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead of the more subtle, you know, dissection of what is really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like, I really like this practice on page 55, this practice of looking directly at difficult feelings. And for me, this is the kind of thing that I've heard many, many times. But given that kind of what happens in our mind is like a little opaque, there's no like joystick, I can mm-hmm. maneuver to like, put difficult feelings like squarely in my crosshairs and look at them. Mm hmm at first glance it can be like oh well what are what is she saying or like what am, what am i supposed to do here but i feel like i know how to do it now and it's really quite incredible to like really look squarely at difficult feelings i feel like for me a lot of times they're live, living in like the periphery like on my shoulders mm. or the stress in my head and it's almost like they're behind me or on either side of me and I'm not quite mm-hmm. looking at them. I'm being like spurned on by them or mm-hmm. trying to distract myself from them How do you how do you like really drill the point home? How do you like instruct someone in the clearest way possible to be like just look at them look at these feelings
1: uh usually it's it's a kind of a step by step process. It's actually one of my favorite parts of my book. Um, is a story I tell about co-teaching with um, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine uh, named Susan. And Susan, this was at the Insight Meditation Society, and Susan had started her practice there maybe 15, 20 years before this night. So she kind of, uh, she'd done a lot of practice. She became a teacher. We were teaching together, and she was giving the talk, so. I was just sitting there in the hall listening and she was recalling her very first retreat. And she said, you know, during my first retreat and Sharon was one of the teachers, she said, I got so restless. I mean, it was insane. She said, I just, I went to Sharon's room and I said to her, has anyone ever died of restlessness doing meditation? And she said, so of course I was very interested. Like, what did I say? All those years ago. So, has anyone ever died of doing of restlessness, doing meditation? And she said, "Not from just one moment at a time of it." And I thought that's a good answer. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the point. We can actually tolerate one moment at a time of it, but not when we lump it all together. Like, what's it gonna feel like tomorrow? And there's like, "It's too much. It is way too much." Um, So that's a part of the the important reminder. Just one moment at a time of it. And then it's usually, as I said, it's kind of sequential. Like, what do you feel in your body? That's enough. You don't have to deal with the issue. Like, what do you feel in your body? One moment at a time. Um, If you were going to name the overriding emotion, let's say it's uh, grief or, or anger. Is there another emotion? Just watch the movie. Like, not to resolve it or fix it. But like, what else is in there? What else is in the mix? That's the place where, you know, if you're looking at anger, you might see a lot of fear. You might see a lot of sadness. You're just watching. Um, and that would be enough, you know, and sometimes we go on from there when we feel more confident and, uh, more able to sense, okay, I can be with it one moment at a time. Um, and you begin to see kind of more universal truths. Like, Oh, look at how it's changing all the time. I always thought this was so solid, so unwielding. You know, it's just like, um, but look at that. It's always moving. It's always changing. And uh, so even though it was very frightening at first, uh, it's now something we're taking an interest in.
0: hmm Yeah, I've noticed during that kind of introspection that one of the things I'll notice is some aversion to the mm-hmm. difficult feelings. Like a part of me doesn't like it. And Mm -hmm. that can be really liberating and Mm -hmm. it can help me get a little bit unstuck. And it's always a little surprising to find it there Mm because you think, oh, there's just difficult feelings there and then you find, oh no, there's also somebody who doesn't like this.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: There's something interesting on page 66. I was talking to a friend of mine about it and she had quite a different reaction than I was expecting, but I think my psychology feels sort of how you were describing it on the page. You say something like, when experiencing a challenging emotion, we often feel strangely unique. It's helpful to remind ourselves that whatever we are feeling is a part of common human experience. Mm-hmm. I think for me, that really resonates when I'm feeling bad. It feels so personal and so unique. It's so special. Like It's like this is such a special and important problem. And I rarely, rarely will connect the dots the biggest dot being a human being, you know, just like yeah. all the other human beings. So surely if I'm having this experience, you know, I'm not so different from everyone else. Probably it is common. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I told it to my friend, she she was like, oh, I always do that. Whenever I'm feeling something hard, I always think, oh, other people are suffering in the same way. And I thought, wow, you really got this figured out.
1: <laughs> yeah, bravo. That's good. Well, if you look at the work of... Um like Kristen Neff and uh, Chris Germer on self-compassion, which is also, you know, contemporary Western psychological uh, interest. A lot of it does center on that. They call it common humanity. Um, Self-compassion is interesting because a lot of people equate it with like laziness and not caring and like indifference and, oh, yeah, you're going to screw up and you're not even going to care, you know you have compassion for yourself, and it's really not that way. I think if you – I'm not a scientist either, you know, but I hear that if you look at studies about performance and uh, you test, like, a kind of harsh, punitive environment, either internally or externally, people's performance will spike, but briefly, and then they'll crash that in fact, the most effective, efficient way to make a change or change a habit, to learn something new, to make progress in something is actually having more compassion for yourself. Um, Which I equate to, like in the meditation, you know, where let's say you're doing something like sitting with the intention of just resting your attention on the feeling of the breath which was my first meditation instruction. It's the first instruction I ever heard, sit and be with your breath. And so I thought, okay, that's stupid. What'll it be like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind starts to wander. And to my astonishment, it was like one breath (laughs) and I'd be gone and I'd be way gone. So what happens in the moment when you realize that like, Oh, been quite some time since I last felt a breath. Usually, we freak out. I can't believe I'm thinking. No one else is thinking. I'm the only one who's thinking. I'm the worst meditator that ever lived. Like, let's say you're sitting on Zoom or something with people like, no one else here is thinking. They're all sitting here in bliss. They're all sitting here bathed in brilliant white light. I'm the only one who's thinking. Or maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking wonderful thoughts. I'm the only one thinking stupid thoughts. I'm so bad. I'm so awful. So, if you jump on that train, then not only have you added sometimes considerably to the length of the distraction, but you're so demoralized, you're so exhausted that you don't have the kind of energy to start over and be resilient and like pick up the process again, which is what we need to do. And so self-compassion, that ability to kind of give yourself a break, like, yeah, a million miles from the breath, let me start over, that's the way to actually get ahead. Make progress And so uh, When Kristen and and Chris Sort of broke apart Their components of Self-compassion Had to do with mindfulness Realizing You know What you're feeling And This very crucial element Of common humanity I'm not the only one I'm not so alone This is part of life's experience This is part of conditioning You know And then And then a kind of kindness Exercise Where like you know, if your best friend was sitting in a chair next to you and you turn to them and you try to say the thing to them, you just said to yourself, you can't do it. Because we speak to ourselves in a, a much harsher way.
0: Yeah, so it's almost a kind of happy accident that being compassionate to ourselves actually makes us perform better. Or, it's good. Or more quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder in like these really traditionally cutthroat or hard-edged cultures like in the military where they're also really trying to optimize for performance if they've started to bring some of this wisdom in?
1: Well, I mean, moment to moment, I think it has to figure in um, because that's how you do a course correction, right? If you were set on, I mean, let's say you're in a meeting or something, you're set on a problem being resolved in a certain way and you can't let go of that and you're just fixated on that one way, and then it looks like things are moving in a different direction. You have to let go, and, or else you're just going to sit there fretting the whole time. I can't believe they did that. you know, like, they should have taken my resolve. Um, I don't know. the military is an interesting question. I think Amichi Ja is the person to get on your podcast and ask. She's a neuroscientist at the University of Miami, and uh, does a lot of research on mindfulness of the military.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. I think, wasn't that one of, like, John Kabat-Zinn's fears that people were going to be using MBSR to become better assassins or something?
1: Well, it has it has been a fear expressed by many people. John and She are, are friends, and I'm sure they've had many conversations about it, and I don't think um, he necessarily sees it that way. She doesn't... I mean, I've had many conversations with her, too. Uh, you know you shouldn't talk to her. I mean, I think it's just very interesting because the biggest change I think she's seen in people practicing mindfulness is a kind of um, change in executive function so they're more thoughtful. Like, uh, you're less likely to have an emotional hijack in the middle of a fight, you know, and, like, end up with a massacre. Um, like, good things. And, and everyone is concerned about the number of suicides and, and the very real suffering of veterans and, um, you know, and so I don't think anybody would have any question about at least experimenting with these, these tools when someone is suffering. The question that was posed to her, which is one of the interesting questions, is what if it, these practices are preventative? So when you want people to, be less kind of crushed by their experience. And we are a country with the military. And so um, what if people had the training earlier on and and suffered less, you know, later? And so uh, that's where the fear came in, that, you know, it's, it's hap- the training is happening kind of early. So what are you training for?
0: Hmm. So are you saying that, like folks who received this training earlier might be less inclined to like be violent or or something like that. No, it's
1: not so much be violent, well, be violent recklessly, you know. They do find that like with executive function, you know, if you think about uh kind of massacres that happen cuz somebody thinks they see a shadow, you know. Um that I think uh, uh mean, she would say would happen less, but I think people would have less... The the idea is that testing whether they would have less PTSD, uh, there would be fewer suicides and so on.
0: Here's kind of a a different sort of question, maybe a little more metaphysical. So let's say you're meditating, you're focused on the prep, and then all of a sudden... All of a sudden, it seems like no time at all has elapsed because suddenly you recognize that you weren't for a while focused on the breath and so you're back and you're mindful again because of course you must be mindful because how else would you know you've been distracted Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and i'm kind of wondering like what is happening when you're lost in the train of thought like where where are you and and isn't that the same as like being in an awe moment or watching a movie you know like When you watch the movie and you're not thinking about yourself, you're just watching the movie. It's kind of similar to like being lost in thought. And yet being lost in thought is seen as somehow worse, but they feel similar because they're both sort of not self-conscious. But one is associated with the word distraction, and it's kind of maybe not your goal because your goal or intention is to be with the breath. So I don't know. This has been in my mind a little bit lately. And as someone who's meditated for a long time, I was wondering what you thought about it.
1: Well, I think uh you know, I, I think in terms of kind of a map of consciousness they're probably the same. It's just your intention is different, you know, from just being mindlessly entertained and one to uh cultivating mindfulness as as a strength, you know, it's almost like muscle training. Um so then, but even then, it shouldn't be pejorative, like, oh, damn it, I can't believe, you know, I got distracted again. Uh, and not every meditation is, is just about being with the breath either, by the way, you know. So uh, you may just then start watching thought and watching patterns of thought lead to physical changes and changes in the body lead to changes in the mind. And, you know, there are lots of ways of, of practicing and uh, with a very kind of narrow scope or a much broader scope. Um, But, you know, even if you are uh, sitting down with the intention to rest your attention on the breath, you understand it's not going to be, you know, without movement because our minds are trained to wander. And so the question is, you know, do you want to bring it back as gracefully and as quickly as you can?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess the intention there is really the, the big difference. There's this term named on page 89 that I hadn't heard of before called bright siding. And I guess that's something you find sometimes in these self-help or spiritual communities. Um, The definition I have here is invoking platitudes as if all hardships are a gift to learn something from. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also maybe when we get into the distinction, there's a distinction a little earlier on page 69 about givens, not gifts. Mm-hmm. So what what is this phenomenon that we find of people who take hardships and sort of obligate themselves to do something important with them? Or is that the idea?
1: Well, I mean, I think it, uh, it was expressed with Roshi um, Joan. That was her saying, don't kind of force yourself to see the traumas of your life as gifts. They're givens. You know, so that there's a certain way in which we uh, want to not, you know, be humiliated by your experience, not add shame to it, not kind of freak out about it, but we want to be able to say, yeah, this happened. And so um, that's a given. But when you try to force yourself to see it as a gift, because, you know, maybe your friends tell you that's how you should you seeing it or there's a certain cultural milieu that says, yeah, you have to really see this as, as a, as a gift. Then it first of all, it's force. And second of all, you know, it's phony. You may not feel that way. I mean, some people do, they say, you know, my brain tumor was a gift or whatever, uh, which is extraordinary, but um, there's healing to be had without that, you know, and that is more like not doing battle with it and, and feeling ashamed of it and so on. And, and so um, I feel very reluctant to have people feel pressured, you know, to assume a certain attitude or certain perspective on their experience in that way. So bright signing would be kind of like, yeah, just like that. It's all a gift, you know? And like, uh, really, is that how you feel about it when you're lying in bed at night and you can't sleep? Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of what you've brought up about being able to face pain and, Having, realizing you're strong enough to face pain and and there are tools that will help you and sometimes in your life there are people who help you. Uh, that seems very important so you don't just walk around in this dream world.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was uh, hanging out with some friends recently and I let one of them know that I didn't get this audition for this improv thing that I was trying to get into and started saying oh i'm sorry to hear that and, and my my initial response is to say something like oh it's no big deal it doesn't matter <laughs> right. it's something else but i noticed myself doing that and then i i kind of just you know i leaned back a little and i was like yeah it does kind of suck like let's why not be honest about it yeah, you know it's it's okay to say that something sucks
1: um, we should talk about improv sometime
0: we should yeah the yes and i'm yeah. looking at it right here we had a we had an improv mindfulness teacher come to our sangha not too long ago, which was really cool. Really?
1: Who's the improv mindfulness
0: teacher? Uh, I'll have to get you the name. Okay. I, can't, I can't remember. Um, but I want to be respectful of your time and yeah, we're, we're yeah. close to the hour. So Sharon, it's been an enormous pleasure um reading you know i started the podcast three years ago with real love oh, Really, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> and, yeah and at the time i didn't have the chutzpah to really interview or email guests to ask them to be on the podcast because i was just starting out so it's just me reading my notes so it's uh it's really a great circle here to come back and now have real life to talk about so thank you so much for for writing this book and the work that you do and and spending some time with us today
1: oh that's great well thank you so much